This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that states can essentially eliminate the insanity defense in a 6-3 ruling with an unusual lineup. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law legal editor. So, Jordan, the defendant here was accused of four murders. What kind of defense did he want to mount? The defendant, James Kaler, wanted to mount an insanity defense by showing essentially that he wasn't responsible because he didn't know the difference between right and wrong, what the courts have called a moral incapacity defense. How is that different from what most states recognize as an insanity defense? So he might have actually been able to raise that sort of defense in most states, but unfortunately for him anyway, he was prosecuted in Kansas, which along with a handful of other states, doesn't recognize such a defense. And so that's the issue that wound up coming up on appeal, is whether he was allowed to mount that sort of insanity defense or whether he was limited by a narrower version of the defense allowed in states like Kansas, where he was prosecuted. Explain the differences of proof between those two defenses. Sure. So taking Kansas for example, where the defendant, James Kaler, was prosecuted here. At trial, he would have been allowed to show that because of any mental illness that he had, uh, that for some reason that prevented him from forming the required intent in order to commit the crime. Also, at the sentencing phase, he was allowed to present evidence of mental illness as mitigation evidence. Uh, What he couldn't do, though, was show at trial that because of his mental illness, the fact that he didn't know the difference between right and wrong, he couldn't use that sort of insanity defense in order to be exonerated. So it was a six to three decision. It was Elena Kagan who wrote the majority opinion, and she was joined by all of the conservative justices, which is an unusual lineup. Right. So, you know, in some criminal cases and in some other cases in general, we do see this sort of classic uh, 5-4 ideological split. We see those lines skewed. And in fact, in most cases, most cases are not that sort of typical 5-4 split. And this would be an example of a case, obviously, that doesn't align neatly along with that narrative. Now, Justice Kagan, of course, is one of the or Democratic appointees on the court. Uh, However, in addition to some criminal cases not neatly falling along these ideological makeups, she's also probably uh, to the right, if you will, on the left side of the court. So now it's not the most surprising thing in the world, but of course it is uh, noteworthy in some respects to point out. So explain what her decision laid out. Sure. So really the question in one way to look at it was what sort of leeway do states have in fashioning the types of insanity defenses that defendants are allowed to raise? James Kaler and other defendants raising similar claims and people supporting him, their argument was essentially that what Kansas offered, uh, they said they offered a type of insanity defense, but by not allowing a defendant to put his moral culpability on the line in terms of using that to being able to be acquitted by not allowing that their argument was essentially that 
these states really don't actually have an insanity defense in the sense that the U.S. Constitution allows. Now, the Supreme Court said that that's not true. The U.S. Constitution, its due process clause, doesn't require states to allow this sort of moral incapacity defense. And in ruling that, the Supreme Court gave states leeway to fashion different types of insanity defense systems along the lines of Kansas's system. So it was certainly a victory for states looking to have more leeway in fashioning their systems and a loss for people who are advocating for the more traditional insanity defense, which has been allowed over the years and may well have been allowed in most other jurisdictions besides states like Kansas. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote the dissent. Tell us what his reasoning was. Well, his reasoning is along the lines of what the defendant here was saying, that the type of insanity defense that he wanted to raise, that's really the core type of insanity defense going back at least to the founding of this country, and that the majority's decision essentially hollows out any real insanity defense that defendants are allowed to raise, that essentially there isn't an insanity defense when you're not allowed to put your moral blameworthiness on the line. And it was a rather lengthy and spirited dissent from Breyer, and he was joined by the remaining two Democratic appointees, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. And really his the whole case really is a case about history. The majority looks at history and says, based on history, this type of insanity defense that the defendant wanted isn't so firmly rooted in the nation that it's something that the U.S. Constitution requires. The dissent looks at history and it comes to the opposite conclusion, saying that being able to put one's moral culpability on the line really goes to the heart of the criminal justice system. So it really was a fundamental disagreement between the majority and the dissent here. The states that have this along with Kansas, it seems sort of regional. It's Alaska, Idaho, Montana, and Utah. Any specific right. reason why those states? Well, every state sort of uh, does its own thing, so to speak. And Justice Kagan did note that those handful of states do similarly have a system like Kansas. But even beyond that, Justice Kagan noted in her opinion that a ruling for the defendant, Kaler, would have required striking down those sorts of laws in those states, not just that, but also some 16 other states. So every state has its own specifics in terms of how it carries out its criminal justice system. And that's kind of really the issue at the heart of the case. It's a federalism question in some ways of what are states allowed to do? What is the U.S. Constitution, which sets essentially the minimum that states have to do? What does it require? Now, the Supreme Court, the majority didn't necessarily answer the question of what minimum is required by a state. Really, all that the court held here is what Kansas does in its insanity defense system is good enough. And it left open the question for another day whether states can fully outright abolish the insanity defense or whether a state that doesn't allow what Kansas allows would be good enough. And so we would just have to see potentially in a future case really what the limits of the Taylor case is. And Jordan, when the justices initially took the case, did they say they would decide whether states can abolish the insanity defense? And then they came up with this much narrower rule? Right. So the question that was presented by the defendant Kaler's petition was, can states abolish the insanity defense? And so that's 
that's a pretty bold question and that got a lot of people's attention now and this happens sometimes in supreme court's decisions the justices they want to decide as narrowly as possible at least they'll say so a lot of times when they discuss cases and in a footnote in justice kagan's decision uh, she made clear that they weren't deciding this bigger question of can a state outright abolish the insanity defense all they were saying according to the majority according to the majority was that Kansas didn't abolish its insanity defense here. What Kansas was doing here was good enough. So in some respects, it was a narrower ruling than one that some court watchers perhaps expected when cert was granted in the case. Some legal experts are saying that this is basically, the Kansas rule basically does eliminate the insanity defense. Right. It's prompted an interesting debate, at least in the academic community and among lawyers, of is there really something you can call an insanity defense in a scheme like Kansas's? So, for example, Justice Kagan's opinion pointed out the fact that a defendant can use their mental illness to show that they couldn't form the required intent to commit a crime. Now, sort of the rejoinder to that in terms of saying that that doesn't really count for an insanity defense of any sort is that prosecutors in criminal cases have to prove criminal intent anyway. And so calling that an insanity defense is sort of a redundancy. It's basically just doubly stating what prosecutors have to prove. And according to people who align with Justice Breyer's dissenting view, doesn't really amount to something you could really call a true insanity defense. So what are the implications of this decision? Well, it remains to be seen, as we were discussing earlier, the court was only talking about Kansas's scheme here. And so if other states' systems wind up coming up and being pressed in front of the court, they could wind up taking a sort of state-by-state approach if the court were to examine the particulars of every state. One thing that we can be sure of, at least according to Justice Kagan's opinion, is that the opposite decision in in upending the status quo certainly would have resulted from the majority's view anyway in having to strike down laws in more than 20 states. So really what the decision does is it upholds the status quo, but of course that's super important for defendants like James Kaler and others in similar states and trying to press similar appeals who are hoping that the Supreme Court would say that more is required than what Kansas and similar states have done with their insanity defenses. Thanks, Jordan. That was Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor.